We pray. Lord, as you invite us to the feast, we come on our knees, for we are not worthy to even be invited. And yet, because of the humiliation of your Son, you lift us up and call us your children. And so we are honored to be invited to the feast that our Father throws, the feast to honor our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we live out our days in humility due to our sin, let us also live our days rejoicing that our Savior, Jesus, has lifted us up and called us his dear brothers and sisters. So let us live out every day of our life, putting all people to the one who deserves all glory and praise, even our Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Okay, so uh, we are today going to talk about that, Jesus. So we're in John 4. Last week I wasn't here, so I heard you guys did some kind of amalgamation of 1 John 3 and John 4. Is that right? And, and Pastor Zagora is here, so if you have any questions, he can, he can answer them. Do anybody have any questions from last week or any other week that you've been perseverating upon? you guys even remember last week? Yeah, I don't either. It's okay. We were in the sewer dropping the girls off at school. That's why we weren't here. So actually, last Sunday, we were at um, St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Manhattan, Kansas. So we, we learned in Bible class, we went over Exodus. So we did the Ten Plagues, which was awful because, you know, they're plagues. It's not fun. But it was fun to be there with the saints there. So, all right. Any questions on anything? Yes, sir. So, what have you seen this week going on, or not politically, but religious stuff that you're concerned about? We're going to talk about that. That's a good question. What have I seen going on religiously that I want to talk about? Um, We're going to talk about that with the first question, so we'll get there. Is that okay? Is there something you've seen that's going on that you want to... I don't don't know if I'm learning enough to pick up on it. Okay. What do you what do you see? What do you think? Well, it seems like to me it seems like we're on a on a, on a slope that's going the wrong way. And it's just not one particular topic, it's it's a lot of things. And I don't know. I guess that's why I'm here so I can get a grip on something. Yeah, I I think we, we are on a we are on a slope going the wrong direction. Um not we. Everyone here, of course, is on the right direction. <laughs> we meaning everybody else in the world, right? Of course. Um, yeah, it, as, you, as we exist in a, in a world in which religious things are being discussed, whether they're explicitly religious or not, the, the trend of the world is to never run toward God. It's to run away from him, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality of concupiscence. That's the reality of, of human um, intellect and endeavors is to run away from God or to seek after a God that isn't the real God, which is the same thing, right? So, so yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we, and we do see it. And we'll talk about that a little bit. In, like I said, with the first question, I, I was thinking about bringing up something. So I will. So let's read um, John 4, verses 20 through 26. John 4, 20 to 26. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so um, number one, why does the Father seek worshipers? We are created in his image. Okay. So why does that mean that he wants worshipers? Because he desires all to be saved. See, do you see what Roger just did? Because Roger, Roger is a is a well-educated Bible guy. He's read the scriptures and, and he knows what he's talking about. So what he just did, now this is very important because what he just did is, is really, really good and really important. He just equated worship with salvation. That's it? Yes, because you said he desires all men to be saved. Do you get that? See, what happens is who, who's active in salvation? Who does salvation stuff? God. Specifically God in, I heard it over here. God in Christ, right? So we're talking salvation. We're talking about God in Christ doing stuff for sinners. Right? We all agree on that? When it comes to salvation, what role do you play? Nothing. Nothing. You just get the gifts that God gives you, right? Well, guess what? When worship is seen, scripturally speaking, it's all about God being the one who is acting to deliver salvation to people who need it. Why does the Father seek worshipers? To save them. To give to them the things that He wants to give. What does He want to give? Salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. Right? What is the... So now you come to church and you are doing something. What's the most important thing you can do to work into this equation of worship? Receive. Right. Receive what God gives. See, it's not that God is lonely and needs friends. So he sure hopes you'll show up to make him feel better about himself. See, God is not a teenager who's unsure if he's loved. That's not the point of worship. Most people think worship is my opportunity to tell God how great I think he is. Well, guess what? God says, I don't need those sacrifices. I don't need your offerings. I don't need you. Right? But who needs who? 
Yes, I need him. Because without him, I can't live. See, the Father seeks worshipers. Why? Because he wants to save them. He wants to give them life. In this context, he wants to give them living water. See? And, and this is what's so important, is that when we talk about worship, we are not talking about our opportunity to show up and be like, hey God, here's the deal, I think you're great. And because I think you're great, you should think I'm great. Right? And this is the contemporary thing I was going to bring up. There was actually a post online today. I'm in this weird, I'm in a weird group on Facebook. I can't even explain how weird it is. It's just a bunch of Lutheran pastors talking about theology. It's really fun. And, and there was a post, and uh, the post said, it's not important what you do on Sunday morning. What's important is what you do on Monday through Saturday. And they're all like, Aah! and I'm like, I'm like, no, stop. It's, it's not about works versus faith. It's actually betraying a really weird idea of worship. Because what's happened in a culture in which Christianity is Jesus and me, and how do I get Jesus? In American Christianity, how do I get Jesus and me on the same page? I make a decision. I make a decision or you have to find him. You have to find him or I pray a prayer or Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit does something. But see, here's the point. In Lutheranism, how are you saved? God reaches to us where? At at home in a closet in a dark room? Through the Holy Spirit and where does that happen? Through the sacraments. Through the... So where does that happen? Church. Worship. See, the problem is, when this happens individualistically in locations all by myself somewhere, oh, I went to a retreat and so I went back to my dorm room and I prayed a prayer. Now, what's the role of worship? I don't know. I guess we're supposed to just come together and be like, yeah, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, let's high five. And it becomes a cardinal's game, right? It's like, yay, God. And so then they say, well, you know, a bunch of people getting together, patting themselves on the back that they're Christians really isn't as important as going out and serving the world. To which I would say, that's actually true. If worship is just me getting together with other people and affirming that we all made the same decision that God's great, well, we all are kind of just wasting our time. Let's just go out and serve the world. But see, that the problem is, it's not a works versus faith issue. It's, it's actually understanding that in worship, who is active? God. And what is he doing? He's what? He's reaching to us and doing one of two things. He is killing you and he is making you alive. When does he kill you? The law. The law. Any time in worship where God says, you are wrong and you deserve punishment, that's killing you. When does he make you alive? The gospel. Anytime you hear what God has done for you in Christ that is saving you, that is forgiving your sins, that is giving you grace, right? Does it make sense? 
See, we don't come to worship because God needs us and because we want to show off our faith. No, we come to worship because without this place, we die. Yeah? I can't skip the thing that gives me eternal life. I can't skip the thing that forgives my sins. I can't skip the place that I go to join with all the other believers in Christ as we kneel before our Father and we confess our sins together and acknowledge the one who can save. The only one who can save. And we do not just say, hey, look at him. No, we actually receive from him the things that we need to live. That's church. Yeah? Yes, ma'am. Um, what about people who don't have a church, like in Aborigine living in the middle of no, like how do you, if you're saying that worship is the method of salvation, it's yep. possible though to get salvation without worship. It's yeah, so, so it's the same thing as baptism. Baptism is necessary to be saved, right? You have to say yes to that because it's in the Book of Concord. <laughs> you, you don't get to say no to that one because it's actually in the Book of Concord. Okay? So that, that's in our confessions. Does that mean that you can't go to heaven if you're not, if you're not baptized? No. See, and that's the point, is that this is the way God has designed it to work. Now, can there be places where it doesn't work like this? Yeah, he's God. He's not going to go like, oh, I didn't think about that. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's not going to be like, oh, I had no idea that's going to happen. So, so what we do is we teach the way it's supposed to, that, that God has given it for it to be. And then if someone finds themselves over here and can't do that, well, we say, okay, you know, we're going to do the best we can. Here's some scripture to read them. You know, here's if you're if you're a father with a family, then you be the pastor for your family, and you have family worship, right? This actually, I knew a guy who was stationed in Saudi Arabia, and they had no connection to any other Christians. So he was like, after a year of of crying out to God and saying, "Give us other Christians," he finally woke up one morning and went, "Wait a minute, we are other Christians." So he's like, "Idiot." This is what he said. Not my words, his. He's like an idiot. So I got up that morning. I became the pastor on Sunday morning to my own family. Right? And, and so what you say is, that's the church. Because what's essential for the church to exist? The word. The word about Christ. Yeah? And padded pews. <laughs> See, and that's the thing is you laugh because we know that's not actually the essence of the thing. Right? So if Christ is present in his word and, and anybody's gathered around that, what do you call that? Church. And that's where salvation occurs. Yeah? Now, if at all possible, you do that with other people, right? Does that make sense? So, so of course that, that would happen and that'd be just fine. Well, not just fine. It'd be, they'd long for the fellowship of other believers, but they'd be the best they could do. Right. Does that make sense? Good question. Can I ask a question about worship? Always. just a fundamental thing. Does worship only occur in church with other believers? Or are there other times when in your daily life that you're worshiping God? Let's just say during prayer time, um, when you're ministering to others. Yep. Um, just... So, so her question is, I don't know if you all could hear her, the, her question is, does, does worship only happen in church? Or, or does worship or can worship happen in other times in your life, specifically if you're involved in something religious, related to your faith? What do you all think? Yes. That's a good answer, Lutheran answer. Is it this or that? Yes. 
somehow. Pastor, do you want to you want to jump in on this one? Yeah. Uh, to summarize it quickly, there are two kinds of worship. There's one that takes place around the altar in church, and there's the worship that is your daily life that's vocation. Uh, and it's why Lutherans have such a high view of your calling and your ministry and your daily life, um, because it's it, it is it, what God has called you to do, how you show love and serve each other. Proclaim the gospel of your life. So I usually summarize it that way. There are two kinds of worship. One that takes place at the altar, corporate worship, with the people of God, and God sits you down and He feeds you. The other worship is God calling you to service in daily life, and He feeds you and feeds everybody, feeds others as you continue to focus on the Word and forgiveness in your daily life. And then run in Bible study. Oh, sorry. Yeah, good, good try, but no, that's entirely wrong. <laughs> Yeah, so, so that's exactly right. Is we, we talk about worship, and the reason I wrote this way is we kind of, sometimes you say worship with a capital W is like what happens at this place around word and sacrament, the body of believers gathered together. And then as we go out from here, we live out that in our daily lives and our vocations as we serve our neighbor, as we do daily devotions, as we gather our family around the catechism, you know, all those things. It, it never, but here's the, here's the emphasis that Lutherans are a little different than everybody else. It flows from this, right? Because the, the thing that happens here, and again, not this location, meaning around word and sacrament, is that God gives to us the gifts. And then we live, because we've received those gifts, we live out our vocations serving within those gifts received. Does that kind of make sense? So, so what we say is, of course... You're going to do things that you might consider or the Bible might consider worship on a daily basis. But, but here's what I would say as an American, and this is where it gets to the contemporary issues, is that we have gotten to a place in America where my individual living out becomes more important than the corporate living out. And that, you know, that's, there are a whole postmodern reason for that and enlightenment reasons and even Lutheran reasons for that. But, but what happens in worship is that this becomes much more focused on what I'm doing. Whereas this is explicitly focused on what God is doing. And, and when this is no longer about what God does, but more about what I do, then I really don't know why there you would come here. I'll just be totally blunt. If, if Sunday morning is much about me doing my, my Christianity as, as Monday is, I'm not totally sure why I would come. But it's not. We come around word and sacraments to receive, primarily to receive from God his gifts. And then when someone gives you a gift, what do you say? Thank you. So that's the other part of worship, right? He gives, we say, thanks. Especially if you deserve death and he gives you life, then you really say, thank you. Which is why Lutherans, we get all gussied up and foaming at the mouth and we give a good hearty, Amen. <laughs> right? That's as excited as we get. That's the eternal thanks of, of the never-ending song of the saints. Does that make sense? Does that help a little bit? So you want to see all of it primarily flowing God to us. Even Wait, yeah. Even when you're at home reading the scriptures, it's God coming to you through his word. Right? Yes? Well, I was just 
church and how where is the danger between being so wrapped up in what we do at the altar and then ignoring what we do well like you're saying the post in the Facebook group was but I think that's a, a fine line that we walk in it must be he calls us to do both so so here's I think here's here's what I would say is that those who receive the gifts of Christ in the in the scriptures always live lives that show forth those gifts to this world. You can't help it. You can't help it. And, and I, I, I really do encourage you to try this. Is The next time someone says, how was your weekend? You look at them and you say, amazing. They say, why? Because the Cardinals won, because Kansas State won, and beat Nipple State. And you go, no, 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 no. I received eternal life. I mean, tell them about how awesome going to church is. The problem is we kind of go, yeah, I had to go to church and it lasted too long. And, and, and so what do they hear? Church is lame. I went out of obligation. But the real fun was college football. Well, what if the church actually, first of all, came to church? And second of all, told this world how great it is to go to church. Why? Because your pastor is so awesome? No, but because God is so awesome. Because God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself is an amazing good news. And I need it and so do you. That's why I go to church. See, and then what happens is it's, it's not this doesn't become any different than this. It's just it flows from it. It's a natural flowing, right? Does that make sense? And it all starts with God's action in Christ. I just... Like you said, you can't help it. Can't help but it. That's right, you can't because the Holy Spirit's the one working through you to do it. Because because what do you receive here? Mm-hmm. Holy Spirit, right? Word and sacrament, Holy Spirit. So what what lives out here? What you receive it just keep it just keeps going. It just it's always God active in you. By grace, through faith. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Always. So when you, not tomorrow because we're all going to sleep in, but when you go to work on Tuesday, you have an opportunity to serve your neighbor. You do it because God in Christ has already served you, right? And it all flows from what we hear and what we experience and what we receive, all those words you want to use here, okay? And then obviously Bible class is above all that. This is the eternal feast in heaven is Bible class, right? Right, Pastor? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 the time in the word that matters, right? That's why we come together. It's the time in the word. All right. So that's that's kind of where I I think uh, from a contemporary point of view, where the shift is is that Lutherans believe that the scriptures teach us that the focus of the church is on God's action in Christ. That this is the point. God's action in Christ is the point. That even the church in America today or throughout the world thinks that the focus is on me, what I do for God. Those are two different ideas. Right? And, and they have huge implications for every single thing we do religiously and how we think about the world from a religious point of view. We believe, teach, and confess that the important thing is what God has done for, for us in Christ. And that the way we live out our faith is because of that. It's a result of that. 
Okay, so God always gets privacy. All right, number two. That was the easy one. Number two is going to take a while. Number two, who is Jesus? So if you look at the last verse, 26, the last verse we read. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That is the weirdest translation ever, but okay. I who speak to you am he. Who is Jesus? He's God, but in this case, he's the Messiah. Okay, so look at 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah who has come, and really here's John, just, just in case you didn't know that Christ and Messiah were the same word in different language, right? So Messiah is Hebrew, Aramaic, and Christ is Greek, same word. So I know that Messiah is coming, and then John tells us he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, that's me, right? So Jesus is... Messiah. And every time you call him Jesus Christ, that's what you're confessing, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, why is that important? We've talked about this before. Who is the Messiah? God. Well, not yet. Well, he is, but not yet. Who is he to a, to a person reading the Old Testament? Who's the Messiah? Moses. Moses is a prefiguration of him, but... Who is the promised Messiah? What's he going to do? What's that? Savior? Yeah, he's going to save Israel. He's, going to, he's actually more, more... He's going to deliver Israel. He's going to deliver God's people from their enemies. Okay? So this, this Messiah is going to deliver God's people from their enemies. That's what the Messiah is going to do. Now, there are different ways the Messiah is going to do this. Primarily, Messiah becomes the king. Okay? Primarily in the Old Testament, Messiah, anointed one, is the king. Okay? So, this is, this is one of my favorite stories to illustrate this. When, when Saul, remember, remember King Saul? He was head and shoulders above anybody else in Israel. Remember him? He was first king of Israel, right? And he messes the whole thing up, like just gets the whole worship idea backwards, gets everything messed up. He finally rejects God. And so God's like, I'm done with you as my king. I'm going to elect David because he's perfect. He will never sin. He's awesome. And so David is anointed king, but not like, not like explicitly because Saul is still king and there's this whole David and Saul thing going on. And so David and Saul become enemies. Well, Saul becomes, hates David really. And so Saul dies, Right. And this guy comes, he's like, David is going to be so happy to hear this news. So this guy runs, he's like, David, I got the best news ever. Saul is dead. And David goes, I can't rejoice when the Lord's anointed is dead. See what he calls Saul? Messiah. I can't rejoice at the death of the Messiah. And so what happens is that this Messiah, this Christ, is prefigured in the kings of Israel. And as you know, all the kings of Israel are good. They're terrible, right? This is why David is always lifted up as the messianic king. He's the best. He's the pinnacle. He's the, he's the man after God's own heart. He's the perfect king who never messes up. Except for that little 
mess up that he had there, you know. But but so what happens is when when Messiah is is looked at as God's promised deliverer, it is mostly thought of through the king. Okay? There's also son of God, there's also other kind of deliverers, there's the great prophet, Deuteronomy 18 and some other passages, but but primarily thought of as deliverer from his enemies from a king point or royal point of view. So she's saying, I know that when Messiah comes, he'll explain all this to us and he'll get us out of all this. He'll explain the whole worship thing. He's going to be the from God guy. And Jesus says, yeah, that's me. Okay. However, we also, really for the first time explicitly, we encounter... Two Greek words, ego and me. Okay? This is the two Greek words for I am. Okay? Now, you guys gonna put on your seatbelts? You ready? You're buckled up? Alright, go to go to Exodus 3. Exodus chapter 3. You guys know the story. You've seen the movie. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3.14. Someone read that for us. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Great. Guess what the Greek word is there in the translation of this verse. It's not a go of me. Isn't that annoying? I wish it was, but it's not. <laughs> Where did my marker go? The translation of the Greek word here is actually haon, which is the same word that's used in John 1.18, which is even a better verse than this one. Okay? So, but this word means the one who is. This one means I am. And you'll see that our translation translates the Hebrew word, which is closer to aya, is actually translated I am who I am. So what happens is, I, I told you to buckle up for this one. This will drive you crazy. I've told you from the beginning that John reads the Old Testament how? Through the book of Isaiah. He's going to read Exodus through Isaiah. Okay? And he's going to say, all of this is really about the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's how he's reading the entire Old Testament. So what happens is, he takes the I am of Exodus 3, and he runs it through the entire book of Isaiah. Now, when you're going to talk about God saving his people in the book of Isaiah, you're going to look at chapters 40 through 55. Okay? Isaiah... 40 through 55 are the chapters in the middle of the book of Isaiah that talk about how God will save his people. Okay? So, go to Isaiah 52, verse 6.
Isaiah 52, verse 6. Did you find it? All right, someone read that out loud. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, on that day, they will know that it is I who told it, it is I. Okay, these are almost identical words to John 5 or John 4, 26. The, the one where it says, therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. In Greek, it's the same. Okay, so this is probably an allusion. John is making an allusion to Isaiah 52, verse 6. Now, look what it says afterwards. How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of him who brings the gospel. Right? Who publishes peace, who brings the gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation. What's the, what's the Messiah going to bring? Salvation. Okay? Who says on Zion, your God reigns. The voice of the watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for their eye to eye. They see the return of the Lord to Zion. Who is Jesus? He is the return of Yahweh to Jerusalem. He is Yahweh in the flesh with his people. That's who he is. Right? Okay, now it keeps going. Um, verse 10. The Lord has buried his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the insiders shall see the salvation of our God. When in the Gospel of John will you see Jesus lifted up as the God who saves? On the cross. See, this is what John is bringing all of this into this conversation with this Samaritan woman. He's saying, this great I am of Exodus, Isaiah explains who it is. This great I am of Exodus is going to be God showing up to save his people. Right? Moses in the burning bush, God shows up to save his people. In Isaiah, God is going to show up to save his people. Now the day has come when God shows up to save his people. And what you'll find out is that in Isaiah 42.55, Yahweh says, I am, I am. And there the word is a goemi. Okay? So what happens is Jesus is actually using the words of Isaiah to identify himself as both the Messiah and actually as Yahweh himself in the flesh. And he is going to get in deep trouble for this. Because he doesn't just do it here. He's going to keep doing it over and over and over and over. And pretty soon, the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews are going to say to him, if you keep calling yourself Yahweh, we're going to kill you. And he says, yup. And in three days, I will rise again. Right? So this is one of the first places where you see, and it's subtle here. It's not explicit here. It's subtle. that he is saying... I am, meaning the divine name Yahweh. He's also saying I'm the Messiah. Now, I hope you're still in Isaiah 52 because you weren't supposed to turn away from there yet. I keep showing you this, but I'm just going to, you don't all have memorized yet, so we're going to get you there. 
So remember Isaiah 52.13. Isaiah 52.13 begins what's known as the fourth servant song, which goes through Isaiah 53, right? 12. This is the one that we quote on Good Friday where... You know, by his stripes we are healed. The, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. It's the crucifixion, right? One that, that prophesies the crucifixion. So Isaiah has this servant song. But look at the beginning of it. Look at 52.13. Behold my servant. That's who this whole song is about. It's a servant song. Shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Now, those words were used in Isaiah 6 to describe Yahweh on his throne. In the Gospel of John, high and lifted up will be used to describe Jesus on the cross. This is the point. The servant of Yahweh. The servant of Yahweh. So, Evid Yahweh, for you Hebrew guys. The servant of Yahweh will be high and lifted up in his death, and will be Yahweh himself. At both the same time. He will suffer like a person who is in trouble, and he will be God exalted. And that makes no sense. Because in order for that to happen, you're going to have to have one person who is both God and man. And that can't happen. Right? So you read the prophecy and you go, this doesn't make any sense. This can't work. We must be misunderstanding that. Until Jesus walks up and goes, all of those prophecies, the entire Old Testament, right here. And the disciples go, yes, we chose the right guy. This is going to end so well for us. Right? And they say, yes, we're convinced. So let me sit at your right on your left when you come in glory. And then Luke 14, he says, now, when the master throws a feast, don't take the seat of high, 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 high position. Humble. And then the guy who says that is crucified, stripped naked, and declared to be the worst sinner of all. Guilty of not just your sins, but yours and yours and yours and yours and mine. Right? And therefore, God exalts him and gives him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, so Jesus comes and he is the humble servant. Join him. Join him in that humility. Right? See, that's, that's where all this is leading, is that this, this amazing servant who served God's people is high and lifted up, and he's Yahweh in the flesh. That's the entire Gospel of John. All we're going to see is how John keeps showing us this over and over and over and over. Okay? So we're going to keep seeing these I am statements kind of pop up. Some of them are going to be very explicit, like in John 8, 58, where he says before Abraham was, I am, and they all get what he's saying, and they pick up stones to try to kill him. 
Okay? Other are going to be more hidden along the way, and we'll pick those out too. Okay? So there's kind of a mixture. Craig? It's kind of a broad question. Um, in the Old Testament, it seems like his people, God's people, yeah. are very well defined as yep. Israelites. That's right. In the New Testament, all people. See, Jesus mean? just messes the whole thing up. What is that transition? Right, that's exactly right. What is that? So, so what happens in the Old Testament, you have Israel, right? And, and that is the people of God. If you want to be in God's family, you have to belong to Abraham. Because it is a blood lineage to Abraham that defines you as part of God's people. Period. Right? And if you're a male and you want to be part of that, what do you do? You've got to be circumcised. So if you're a Gentile who's heard this amazing Yahweh and you want to get into God's people, what do you got to do? You got to be circumcised because you got to shed your blood because it's all about blood. And it all goes back to Abraham. So you've got to be circumcised, but then also be washed in a ceremony of washing called baptism. And you also have to get rid of all your unclean food and all your unclean stuff. And, and you can be into the family, but you'll always be a proselyte brought in from the outside, right? A, a grafted in branch. But you can be in. But the point is, you've got to be attached to Abraham. You've got to be attached to the promises of Abraham, especially circumcision. And you've got to follow the law of Moses. Because that's what God's people do. If you say, I belong to Abraham, don't follow the law of Moses, you are out. And the only way to get back in is through sacrifice. Thus, the sacrificial system. Okay? That was narrowly defined, neat and tidy. What happened to destroy that? Nope. This was destroyed by Assyria destroying the northern kingdom in 722 BC and Babylon destroying the, seven, the southern kingdom in 587 BC. The people that were destroyed by Assyria never came back. They didn't come back to the Holy Land. Because remember, God's people is not just a people constituted because of blood of the lineage of Abraham. They're also given a physical land. So if you live in the land, you belong to Abraham, you're part of the people. But if you're outside of the land, who knows what's going on, right? So it, when they were into exile, they left the Holy Land and some of them never came back. So now we have scattered Israelites. So we don't know if they're actually Israelites or not. Like the Samaritans in John chapter 4. They can trace the lineage back to Abraham, but they don't seem to be living like Israelites. Hmm. We don't know who they are. So what happens is, this, all of Israel is finally fulfilled. All these ideas of Israel. Promised land, promised people, blood of Abraham, circumcision, blood rites, sacrifices, all condensed into one person. God's entire people is one guy. And it's not Abraham. What, you say you're greater than our father Abraham? Before Abraham was? I am. Who do you think you are? I think you know who I think I am. Right? <laughs> That's the point. So now, when he, this is the answer, when he gave himself to be the savior of the world, God's people no longer trace their blood lineage to Abraham. They, put, they trace their lineage to Jesus. Okay? So now, God's people 
is the church, and the church is made up of people of every tribe, every language, every nation, every race, right? Because it doesn't matter who you are, it's the blood of Christ that defines you as part of God's people. That's it. There's no other qualification. The blood of Jesus qualifies you to be the people of God. Do you have to be tall? No, but you can be. It'd be fun. It'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, see, that's the point. As you go through any human qualification, you go, mm, okay, that's not it, right? Do you have to be really good at living a Christian life? No, but if you are, that's really good, right? Do you have to sin? Yeah, you already did. So that was, you got that one licked anyway, right? So see, that's the point. Everyone's qualified. It's, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that defines who the people of God are now. And this is what it says in 1 John chapter 2. You guys got to read this. 1 John chapter 2. It's one of the best chapters ever. John Starcy says this. I wrote chapter 1 so that you will not sin. Like, so that I won't sin? He goes, but if you do sin, you know. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Who is the propitiation for the propitiation of our sins. But then he says this, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That's the point. Is that this, this, God on a cross in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. His whole creation is now the scope of his work to save. I was just listening to a, a, a guy lecture on this last night. Um, one of the things that we do is, is sometimes make the cross too narrow. We want to make sure we always see the cross as God's action to recreate the entire mess. Right? Just as the sin of Adam made the entire creation in a fallen state, right? I mean, even the plants, they went from only bearing good fruit to now being thorns and thistles and briars. And you, if you want to see a sinful lawn, come drive by my house and you'll see <laughs> the grass has no shot. The weeds are thriving like crazy, right? That's the result of the fall. Not really. We might not have had lawns before the fall, but... But the point is that the fact that even plants are no longer always growing perfectly and always to help us, that's the fault. The entire creation is fault. Well, in Christ, the entire creation is reconciled, saved, delivered. And we are simply looking forward to the day when we will see that be a reality, when God will finally recreate the heavens and the earth, just like he did in Genesis. Okay, so this is the reconciliation of the world unto God. Therefore, every single person is eligible to be the people of God. Right? So we don't care who it is we run into tomorrow. They are one for whom Christ died. That's all that matters. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, a couple, couple hands I saw. So the Apple of Design Ministry, where they yeah. to the Jewish people, the Jewish people. Is, is there stumbling, or not a stumbling block, but is there a challenge to, to tell the Jewish people that you can still be Jewish and Christian? There, or, do the, or do the Jewish people believe 
I'm speaking of the world. I don't know what they, but do they believe that I can't be Christian if I'm Jewish? Is it one or the other? Um, their challenge, what they simply work on is to show that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of the Old Testament, not a brand new religion. It's not an identity giving up an identity? Well, it is, but it's, it's saying, it's actually, they're trying to teach them this, that, that the church is Israel in Christ. So that all the promises... Now, the struggle with Judaism is the book of Hebrews in that if you want to go back and try to earn God's favor through Torah and sacrifice and Old Testament ideas, then the, the problem with that is you're actually rejecting God's plan that was fulfilled in Christ. So Apollodai works in a twofold way from what I've talked about is one, to convince people that, that the Old Testament, the reading, is fulfilled in Christ. But then also to show that the, the rituals of the Old Testament are also fulfilled in Christ. That is by grace through faith, not through keeping the Torah. So Jewish people can be both. They can be Christian and Jewish. It's not an law. They can have Jewish heritage and treasure their relationship to Abraham through human blood and be saved by Christ, yes. They can't be Jewish religion and Christian religion. I always kind of thought that from what I read Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews. If you become a Christian, then you have lost your Jewish heritage. Right. Which, some of that's okay, and some of that's not. Um, Lutherans struggle with this, too. I mean, some of you crazy Germans worship in English. Not sure that's really good Lutheranism, because if it was good enough for Luther, it's good enough for me. Right? We used, to, we used to actually say that, that if you worship in English, we're not sure you're actually Lutheran. Because German is the mother tongue. See, and this is the problem, is we're always having to give up what we say is important to us. This is part of the dying, dying to self and rising as Christ. Right? Yeah? We always have to give up what we think is important. Every day. You have to give what you think is important too. I do too. But we just say, well, it's by grace, so I don't really have to. Yes, you do. Yeah, that's what repentance is. So that's, that's the difficulty, is, is they have more of a, there's lines up with the Old Testament, but it's, it's the same struggle we all have. That ministry is just focusing on, on a person, on a, on a group of people, identifiable. We have that throughout our Senate, by the way. We have all kinds of people who are reaching out to specific people, nationalities or ethnicities or whatever, right? Because every, every group that we have divided ourselves into as humans, it, it helps to understand how to speak to them to present the gospel in a way that makes sense of their culture, their ideas, their presuppositions, right? Trust me, teaching Bible class in Africa is different than teaching it here. Different, the same text, same truth, but you use different illustrations and different ways to talk about it. You also speak a different language, which is weird. Okay? Does that make sense? By the way, we're at number two still, and we have five minutes left, so yay us. Before we get out of this section, yeah. Jesus tells this woman, you worship what you do not know. Mm-hmm. But she says, I know the Messiah is coming. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of. Yeah, so, so again, the 
It's kind of weird when he says that. Remember, the Samaritans are reading the five books of Moses, but they've changed the text in some places. And they knew, so the Samaritans knew that Messiah was coming. They had, actually, there's evidence that they had a really, really strong messianic focus in their religion. But they had added with it um, other pagan ideas. So they were actually syncretistic. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The syncretism is joining together the proper worship of God with false worship of other gods and kind of smooshing it together, making it into one worship, right? So within Samaritan worship, they had a hope of Messiah, but they had joined it with other false religious ideas. And Jesus is saying, you, you, don't, you don't actually know the God of the Old Testament. One, because you've rejected the prophets. But two, because you've kind of rejected the pure worship of Yahweh for this worship of other gods as well. But they still had enough in their religious system that Messiah was still a good idea. Okay? It's kind of like today when there are a lot of false religions who still like to talk about Jesus. Okay? Maybe the best idea for us in America would be the Mormons. Very much like the Mormons where you watch what Mormons said, I love Jesus, I think me too. And then pretty soon you'd be like, we're not talking about the same Jesus. (laughs) Right? We might use a lot of the same words, but it's not the same. So she would say, I'm looking forward to Messiah. A Jew would say, I'm looking forward to Messiah. But at some point they'd say, we are not talking the same thing here. Right? And that's what he's saying is, is the Father is going to bring all of these things together in the Messiah so that the only true worship is going to be the worship of this Messiah. And she's like, if only we knew who that was. And Jesus is like, Hello, me. Right? And then what does she do? Yeah, she's like, whoa! She drops her water jar and goes and tells everyone. I just met a guy who, I think, I think the Messiah is sitting at the well outside of our town. Could you imagine what she says? She walks back, she's like, hey, everybody. I think the Messiah is at the McDonald's outside of town. And they all go... Aren't you the one who's had five husbands and you're living with somebody who isn't your husband now? And you're going to come give us religious advice? And she goes, well, I don't know, but he told me everything I've ever done. I think he's the Messiah. And what do they do? They go, we're not going to listen to you. And she goes, great! Go talk to him! Which is the same thing you do when you witness, right? Someone says, well, who are you? And you go, nobody. But listen to what God has to say. Listen to what his word has, actually has to say about him. Listen to him speak about himself, right? And we, we should point him to the Holy Scriptures. Well, it's just your opinion. No, it really isn't, actually. It's, 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 I have it on good authority from God himself that this is what he says. And that's what we do is we point him back to, back to the Scriptures. Does that make sense? So yeah, it's a really interesting idea. Um, the whole idea of worship in this is just such a strong text where Jesus points away from any human institution at all. Whether it's Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim, Samaritans, Jews. He's like, look, 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 look. The time is coming is now when true worship is worth the Father in spirit and truth. 
And those are words that so far in the Gospel of John are about Jesus. And the fact that when you get Jesus, the Holy Spirit will lead you into the truth. Right? So he's centering all worship on him. And, and, the, and as we know in the Gospel of John, all this worship of Jesus is going to look like that. Which is when everyone freaks out and loses their faith. The Gospel of John is building to a climax and everybody's all excited. They're, they're waving their pom-poms. Jesus is awesome. And then he's crucified. And how many people believe? The beloved disciple and his mom were the only people at the cross that were there through the whole gospel. Okay, there's some others there, but we'll see how it all works out. Okay, so that's that's what we're kind of getting at. Does that make sense? All right. Well, we didn't get to number three. So next week we'll come back to number three. Wow. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, teach us to worship you, to receive from you grace and mercy and forgiveness, to repent of all of our sins, to live our lives in submission to your will through your word, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We rejoice that today in this place you have given to us life itself, in our Savior Jesus. Teach us so to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you all.